Welcome to our Workplace Violence 5 Insider Threats in 2023. I'm Dr. Charles Denham, Chairman of TMIT, and it's my privilege to welcome you to our June 15th uh, webinar. This is uh, now we have over 200 uh, sequential monthly webinars, and this is part of a series on workplace violence. For those of you that are on the podcast, I'm showing a graphic that is one of an iceberg, and it is very clear that there's so many different things that are threats to our organizations that are above the waterline, which include workplace violence with active shooter events and lethal force incidents, but under the waterline are the less visible problems with insider threat, uh, the bystander rescue care targets that we have been working uh, towards uh, that are the opportunities for Good Samaritans to save lives before EMS arrives, and also suicide and R&D ethics issues, which we'll cover briefly today. I'm showing a graphic for those of you that are on the podcast of an FBI video entitled Understanding the Insider Threat. And there are links, and on our website, you may be able to watch the full-length videos. And the definition that is provided that really originated in April 2008 is that one or more individuals with access or inside knowledge of a company, organization, or enterprise that would allow them to exploit the vulnerabilities of that entity's security system, services, products, or facilities with the intent to cause harm. And they highlight access or inside knowledge of a company, organization, or enterprise. This is what makes them so extremely dangerous. So today, for those of you that are coming back to watch videos uh, that are not live, uh, or those that want to listen uh, and down, download slides for the um, for your podcast, you may go to safetyleaders.org and click on today's webinar for today's date. The other thing that we'd like to draw your attention to is that we are we are not going to provide information to help bad guys do harm to our organizations, and so we will not be covering in detail uh, leverage points that could be used by bad guys to hurt us. And so if you'd like to join our Emerging Threats community of practice so that we may vet you and you join in a collaborative effort, you may. However, we are not offering detailed information uh, to organizations uh, that would allow those uh, to be able to uh, uh, harm us. And what we'd like to do is uh, just uh, open with the voice of the patient, the voice of our consumers, uh, both of our medical centers as well as our universities. And it's my privilege to introduce Jennifer Dingman, founder of Pulse, Persons United Limiting Substandard and Errors in Healthcare. She is a longstanding, uh, committed patient safety advocate. She's a published author, and she served on a number of federal programs. She's also a winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award. Uh, Jenny, would you please open us? Thank you, Dr. Denham, for your kind introduction. Really looking forward to today's program with regard to workplace violence. This is such an important issue in this decade in our country. I want to thank everyone for being here today and encourage you to share the recording with your friends, families, and colleagues. I'll hand it back over to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jenny. And we are very privileged to have a number of patient advocates that have helped us. 
Now our workplace violence series uh, is now, this is our fifth 90 minute program. We've had numerous speakers. I just like to highlight some of them. You've heard from Jenny. Uh, we also have David Morris, one of the leading world's leading forensic psychologists who has been a longstanding advocate uh, and consultant and advisor to law enforcement and security around the world. He's worked at The Hague. He has both a PhD and a JD. He's getting his MBA at Rice University. Uh, Assistant Police Chief Vicki King, who has just retired from the University of Texas Health Science Center Police Department at Houston, who is a terrific uh, source uh, in this area of workplace violence and insider threat de-escalation, um, who we really uh, recommend that you go back and listen to some of our prior workplace violence programs. And she's got some comments for us today uh, to help us focus. Um, uh, John Nance, who is a longstanding patient safety advocate, who has both uh, been a captain of a major airline as well as a JD and a uh, longstanding best, uh, 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 best practice advocate and a leading author uh, of a, a number of, uh, of uh, uh, award-winning books. We have Randy Steiner, who is uh, with the uh, University of California uh, Irvine uh, program. He is uh, the head of uh, emergency response and has worked very closely with their police department and risk management. Today, you'll hear from Ann Rhodes uh, with a deep dive on this insider threat issue uh, and uh, get her unique perspective. We frequently have Dr. Casey Clements, uh, who is both a PhD, he calls himself a recovering researcher uh, yeah, uh, who has a PhD in, in microbiology, but is also the director of Clinical Services for the Emergency Departments of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Chief Bill Adcox, who is the current chief and a national award winner uh, and current chief of police of the University of Texas Health Science Center Police Department uh, in Houston, um, Dr. Greg Boats, who is uh, for today's uh, purposes, uh, we need to recognize that he is the medical director for that University of Texas Police Department, but he's also a full professor of critical care and anesthesia uh, at the University of Texas uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center, but also a clinical full professor at Stanford Medical School. So we're really delighted to have this group. For those that are listening on the podcast, we put up our social media uh, addresses. Uh, however, we'd like to just remind you and remind ourselves of our purpose. We will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. We've expanded our programs to include higher education. So this includes staff, uh, vendors, uh, faculty uh, of our major uh, universities, colleges, uh, and actually schools K through 12. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve and the ventures we undertake. We know that if we can help uh, with the Holy Grail, which are finding ways of reducing harm that also reduce money, there's a way for them to be, uh, there, there's a way to uh, pay for them. 
Uh, our values uh, spell I care, a great memory cue, memory cue for us, integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. We'll hear about core, core values today with uh, Ann Rhodes. And um, our disclosure statement, none of our uh, speakers have anything to disclose, and we receive no direct, indirect, or affiliated financial support, and we have not received any for this program uh, for more than 30 years, and we commit that they will never be funded by uh, pharmaceutical or uh, device companies in healthcare to uh, keep uh, conflicts of interest at an absolute uh, minimum. Uh, we have an emerging threats community of practice we started uh, before the COVID crisis uh, to focus on what keeps our leaders up at night. What, what are the threats that are keeping our leaders up at night, both visible, invisible, the threat stream and threat velocity is increasing continually. And we identified 30 areas that were of critical concern. Now, this was well before COVID. Um, uh, uh, hit our country. And uh, it turns out that one of our areas was readiness for epidemics. Uh, and as we look at a graphic representation uh, of them, and for those of you on the podcast, we have all 30 uh, of them on the screen with a graphic to show that there, our goal is to reduce the threats, impact of harm uh, by reducing vulnerability, but they will never bring it to zero. And our goal is to increase the safety zone and reduce the potential harm. Uh, we want to remind everybody that the Joint Commission workplace violence definition went far beyond physical uh, violence. It's an act or threat occurring at the workplace that include any of the following verbal, nonverbal, written, or physical aggression, threatening, intimidating, harassing, or humiliating words or actions, bullying, sabotage, and sabotage is a really important one for us today, sexual harassment, physical assaults, or other behaviors of concern involving staff, licensed practitioners, patients, or visitors. And so this was expanded. Now, graphically, we're portraying how many of the 30 emerging threats uh, are impacted by or associated with workplace violence, and they're very substantial. Violent acts against leadership, intentional harm of patients, defamation or unfair press, financial harm to patients, preventable death or severe injury, uh, and we cluster that with insider threats. Now, when we look at insider threats as a definition, the Venn diagram gets bigger, and we have a number, more than half of the 30 threats that we know are keeping our leaders up at night uh, are really impacted by insider threats. If we use a definition, um, the broad definition of the FBI, uh, it gets to be a much, much larger uh, 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 diagram and many of the topics that we are covering, and we won't be covering them all today. We'd like to just remind you that we have an emerging threats community of practice application on the website. So this is on our website. Uh, that uh, 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 that you uh, use to be able to log into our, our program, and we're uh, grateful if you'd like to join our um, uh, our com community of practice and and work with us. We want to draw your attention to uh, the this series. This is the fifth of a series of workplace violence. Threat to caregivers, educators in the community was first. We got such rave reviews uh, on why this is so important, not so much that we're so good at it, but that we're all very concerned about it. We covered beyond physical harm and systems issues in our second one. Our third one, we covered the, uh, the threat impact scenarios, the high impact, high volume, the low volume, high impact, 
uh, and uh, those that uh, that really we should be concerned with. And then we covered uh, hunters and howlers and being able to differentiate between those that are making lots of noise and those that may do something that could really harm our organizations. Uh, there's a video that we showed in our last webinar from the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. We highly recommend that you go back and watch it. We recommend that you go through some of the content that was provided, uh, and we just are highlighting de-escalation is critically important for those of you that are listening. Recognition uh, assessment, de-escalation processes and reporting are all critical for those events, and we recommend that you go to, this is one of our government websites that's got absolutely terrific content, and we recommend that uh, they're very, very good and detailed information be downloaded. Uh, we also wanted to remind you that we've been focused on workplace violence for some time. Uh, and so we have prior webinars in November of 2021, October of 2020. Uh, uh, we have uh, two in 2019, December and August of 2019, where we've covered these topics. So this has been a hot topic for us. We, we're reminded of Warren Buffett's quotes, the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. Uh, and we, we really have been operating uh, without adjusting to these threats. And we fall back to our habit. We always say, as the military has taught us, that we don't rise to our level of our knowledge. We fall to the level of our training. And that's how we can break those uh, break those barriers. So as I shared in the open, uh, uh, there's a terrific video, Understanding Insider Threat. We've get, provided the link to you. We provided the definition to you as uh, we did in the open uh, with some emphasis on access or inside knowledge of a company, organization, or enterprise. Uh, and as we dig into that first video, um, terrorism, workplace violence, and cybersecurity are covered, uh, which we did cover in our last webinar uh, and highlighted. We also want to draw your attention to a second video uh, by the FBI, focusing on the five lessons that the FBI has learned about the insider threats. The insider threats are not hackers. Insider threat is not a technical or cybersecurity issue alone. It's much broader. A good insider threat program should focus on deterrence, not just detection. Uh, and it, be able to have the systems in place to deter uh, and prevent it and get, as we would say, left of boom, higher upstream. Avoid the data overload problem and use behavioral analytics to identify behaviors that might be red flags. Um, at the end of the formal presentations, we are showing the videotape uh, also prepared by the uh, FBI, which is called The Company Man, that is a dramatic, uh, uh, dramatic storytelling of uh, a true story uh, that really can help us kind of understand that. And we'll go beyond our current time of 90 minutes for continuing medical education and continuing nursing education to show that video, uh, but we wanted to let you know that we'll show it and that all three of the videos are posted on our website site so you may watch them. So if you have to go at 90 minutes, no problem, or earlier, uh, all three videos are posted on our website. So let's shift gears into some detail. This is a, this is the, the, the header or the first image on a brochure that is we have on our website, you may download, uh, which is Insider Threat, an Introduction to Detecting and Deterring an Insider Spy. And they really address the fact that a company can often detect or control when an outside uh, uh, individual tries to access 
company data or have physical impact or emotion uh, of or electronic impact. However, the thief who's much harder to detect, who can do the most damage is the employee with legitimate access. That the insider may steal solely for personal gain. They may be a spy for someone else. And we now know that we have an enormous problem with nation state uh, invasion of our uh, major universities, systems, and medical centers right now. Uh, without drawing attention to any one country, we know it's a major problem. Every one of our universities is being hit, and we'll get into that in a little bit more detail. Um, as we look at uh, the this, this uh, brochure, uh, on the left panel of the brochure are a number of cases which have been described, and we won't go into those. We'll give you a chance to go ahead and look at them, but really the deeper dive is in the uh, in the uh, sec the third and fourth pages of this brochure, which we've blown up for you. And that protecting intellectual property is in incre incredibly important. There's an increase in this that's going on. Congress has continued to expand this, but we've got a bigger and bigger problem. Post-COVID, many of the safeguards had to be dispensed with because people were working from home and they had to access information to continue to work. And we've let down an awful lot of our safeguards and our guardrails, which have been very hard to put back up. And again, the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy, heavy to break. Now, the personal factors that are really important that are highlighted by the FBI are greed or financial need. And you'll hear from Ann Rhodes here shortly about um, people undertaking certain insider threat activities, criminal activities uh, that are, are because they just have critical need. And we can actually see some behaviors and recognize some of those behaviors. Anger or revenge. This is the, the grievance warrior. If you listen to our prior programs with Vicki King, who described that, that they're very easy to identify once you start to think about the trigger events that can occur and those that have a big grievance, problems at work, lack of recognition can be can build uh, up to a, a problem. Um, uh, ideology uh, uh, and identification, a desire to help an underdog, divided loyalty, allegiance to another person or a company or a country outside of uh, the country. We know at MD Anderson uh, and our major top 10 medical centers are all all having international threats of people that want to come to visit and, and appear to want to learn, and yet they're representing nation states. Adventure and thrill can be part of it, just, a, a, just getting to be a James, James Bond wannabe, vulnerability to blackmail, uh, compromise, as uh, we would know from the Soviet bloc countries that are used uh, frequently, uh, uh, the, the spies uh, and and to turn someone to help often use what's called mice or the, the mnemonic mice, which is money ideology, compromise, co something compromising them uh, with with blackmail, uh, and then ego, which is the what, the next one on the list here. Uh, uh, and appealing to their ego and self-esteem. Ingratiation, the desire to please. This is hap this happened during the Cold War, continues to. Compulsive and destructive behavior. We have such a terrible problem with uh, opioids today. Uh, it is the leading cause of death uh, in the workplace in the workplace years. We're doing a tremendous amount of work there uh, in that space, especially with fentanyl and counterfeit drugs. And then family problems. And you'll hear a little bit from Ann Rhodes a little bit later. The organization 
situational situations may increase the ease for thievery. Availability of the information, proprietary or classified information not labeled, ease of someone exiting a facility, people that are working late at night uh, when they have to work late at night, undefined policies, this perception that security is lax. Time, and that happened with COVID. Time pressure, uh, when employees are rushed, uh, they may uh, they may make some mistakes regarding leaving laptops around and that kind of thing. And employees that aren't trained to know how to properly protect proprietary information. And behavioral indicators were are really big. And I'm not going to read the graphic, but for those in the audio uh, that are listening to our uh, podcast, uh, there are behaviors that may be a clue that an employee uh, is spying or potentially a risk for insider threat. Without need or authorization, they take proprietary information home, inappropriately seeks proprietary information that says is related to their duties. We've seen this with the recent uh, Air Force, uh, the young man with the Air Force that was posting confidential information going to jail, interested in matters outside of the scope of their duties, unnecessary copies, uh, remote access to the computer while on vacation leave or other odd times. You hear from Ann Rhodes saying, really important that people take vacation and that you have people take their place so that they can see that the systems are being followed. And this isn't Big Brother. This is just a, a method used at most companies. Disregarding company computer policies, installing personal software, hard, hardware, accessing restricted websites, Working odd hours, this is a very common one. Working late and uh, uh, and then being able to have access to things that aren't important, that, that aren't pertinent to their job. Unreported foreign contacts, short trips to foreign countries, unexplained affluence, uh, engaging in suspicious personal contacts, being overwhelmed with life crises and, and career disappointments, unusual interest in the personal lives of coworkers and inappropriate questions. Uh, concern that they're being investigated and uh, leaves traps to detect searches. These are all the behaviors. Now, the FBI says that organizations need to do their part to deter it. education, ensure that, that information is protected, use of appropriate screening, providing non-threatening convenient ways for employees to report suspicions. You'll hear from Ed Rhodes regarding anonymous reporting and also from Dr. Boats. Uh, ensuring security, um, and being able to seek assistance from the FBI. So these are all uh, areas of, uh, of, uh, of importance uh, that, uh, that the F FBI has illustrated. Uh, what we'll do now is we recorded uh, last night, Ann Rhodes is tied up today, we recorded last night uh, a discussion regarding these topics, and we'll ask Ann to kind of cover them. Uh, Ann Rhodes is the current CEO of People, Inc., she she has worked with uh, as many as 50 organizations to tie core values uh, 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 to uh, the behaviors. She developed the behavioral-based uh, based interviewing system for Southwest Airlines, where she was the chief people officer. Uh, she's a co-founder of JetBlue, built on core values. Uh, she wrote the book, Built on Values. And uh, she has just been a longstanding friend and helped us so much with patient safety, quality, and now uh, is helping us with uh, uh, with organizations of higher education. And so we're really privileged to have Ann speak with us, and we recorded her last night. So Ann, thank you very much for uh, your time today. Can you can you share with us what HR leaders need to be thinking about in 2023 regarding insider threats? Well, in in the airline world where I come from, we have to watch 
anything that they would do, something they would put on an aircraft, something they would, um, and someone who would get, become an employee and would be on the line, of course, go on the flight line could really um, endanger people that are getting on a flight, obviously, if they touch that aircraft. We also have a lot of IP in some of these. Right now, um, we have all kinds of new versions we're looking at to improve air service and also the safety. And they could get some of that IP, which we are developing ourselves in a separate company for JetBlue. And we're also looking at um, fuel, new fuel. We're helping develop new fuel, um, testing new fuels. And they're all things that we help to market if they get the IP and market it before we do. And that's one of the things we were talking about the other day where we actually have a um, enterprise company with JetBlue. And we've been looking at all kinds of new ideas and we're housing them in that company. And so we're very aware that someone could find out about that and go to market with it before we could. So that's one issue. The other to me is safety is our biggest value. So safety is what really... Um, scares me in the airline world. But working in the banking world, I worked there um, for years. And we had people that took money out of accounts that we couldn't even, we didn't even weren't aware of. And they were siphoning off cash from those accounts. And one of them headed our payroll. She started using all the employee information, including my own, to get a house, literally. She used our credit to get a house. So a lot of the information that's in HR, payroll, you have social security numbers, you have background, you have all kinds of information. If you have the wrong players in those jobs, you can have, she also took the CEO's identification. She um, took it and used it every day. They said at her home, package after package after package, FedEx and everyone just raved about how much she spent and later on said we should have thought about what's going on here because it was incredible. So, so one of the signs was her affluence. That's right. She was spending a lot. Of she money. was spending a lot of money. She had told them she was moving to a larger home. Uh, she was renting and, she, and then she was going to buy a house. When before that she had been telling people she lived paycheck to paycheck. She was the head of payroll for us, large company. So, um, so, so HR department really needs to be cognizant of uh, insider threats and the behaviors that might be red flags. Behaviors are critical. I had another one who literally um, ended up committing suicide because she knew we were on to her finally. Um, she had taken high six figures before we even figured it out. She had been a new employee with great recommendations. We called them. We talked to the people. We knew the people. Um, but she had some. Um, problems financially and because of an older husband and medical bills. And she was telling us about it. We should have thought about it and maybe worked with her, but she took a lot of money before we ever knew it was happening because she needed it for medical um, bills for her husband. So what red flags would you want HR to be cognizant of in 2023 now that we're so active socially and we're post-COVID? Well, I would make people aware of these issues and to watch their employees who, frankly, um, when you see a change in behavior, we say we should be watching that anyway, especially if all of a sudden they tell you they have financial problems, sit them down and start talking to them about it and see if there's any way you can help. Because at some point, 
they don't see any other recourse but to get their hands on whatever they need in any way they can. So we've gone through that several times. A couple things we make people do, we make them take vacation. So we have someone go in and do that job while they're gone. And I think it's critical that they get away from the job for a while so we can actually have someone make certain, certainly if they're in charge of payroll, we send someone in to do audits when they're on vacation. Um, which is very common today in companies. And you should keep doing that because sometimes when you're short team members for audit, you don't, you miss it. And we, we really would have caught it if we had done that in that case where she was uh, siphoning money off from payroll. Um, we would have caught it had we sent an auditor in, but she hadn't taken vacation for three years. And, and we nobody ever in the banking industry that that is a requirement at certain officer levels. But they don't enforce it when they're short. A lot of banks just don't enforce it. I mean, I've worked in several and worked with some who said that was a mistake. Um, we are shorthanded, which everybody is today, frankly, in those types of jobs, those entry level jobs. And they didn't go in and force somebody to take a vacation. I think we should do it in healthcare too, A, because they need the break and B, because then we can go and look at and talk to people and make sure that there aren't issues that we are, especially if it's someone we're questioning, if they have a change in their health status or a family member and it's significant, or if they have a change in um, their financial status, we should at least talk to them and see what's going on and see if we can help them. It means time for the leader and leaders don't have a lot of time, but it saves you a lot, of, much more time later on when you're trying to figure out and fix the mistake. So I'm really into keeping track of what's going on in your employees, any significant change or event that you could help with. So um, what, what do you think of anonymous reporting systems of suspicious behavior? We have that. We have it in almost every... We have it at JetBlue. We have it at um, Regis. I'm on the board of Regis. We own a bunch of salons and we have a anonymous way for you to report a hotline. And everyone should have a hotline where people can report certainly changes in behavior, a concern they have about an employee who's going through a difficult time that maybe they just need help with. A way to do it where it isn't accusatory without you know, just because they dislike someone. It's got to be very specific on what you look at. So we have our outside auditors look at that hotline and all the information along with someone from HR. So it, so from a standpoint of protecting one's organization from liability, is it important to have that third party, unbiased third party outside to look at it? Um, we don't always do it. We look at it first. Then we see how, what the event is. If it's an event where we need to refer it, we refer it to the auditors. But sometimes they'll just, it'll be something very simple and something we can refer back to the manager. So, Ann, what's your advice regarding rebuilding police departments that are part of the university or part of a medical center that really need to be rebuilt? Well, in many cases, you don't have the right people on the bus, as Jim Collins said. So get the right people on the bus first. And that's someone who has the core values of the organization, not just the history of being um, in law enforcement, but someone who really has the same values and make sure that they're well-trained in how to recognize these behavioral changes in people, whether it's 
I mean, and then I would train my leaders in the organization also on it and then get them to work and report directly to these people if in the event they see something that's significant on a change of behavior. So if a professor in the university all of a sudden starts being erratic, if he starts um, changing behavior and all of a sudden really concerning people to the point where it concerns them or even a student. Um, they need to know where to report it and then they need to do an investigation. They don't need to just forget it. You know, there are people in HR who uh, may hear of an event and just don't have the time and don't do anything with it. They should immediately report it to the overseer, which should be the police department, if it's a significant change in behavior in someone. Because you can tell right away if all of a sudden they act um they act so differently than they did before. And it's threatening to people. People today are more aware of watching for that, I think, than they've ever been because of what's happened in these universities. And I think sometimes we don't take the time to follow up. And that's a huge mistake. So I would have someone appointed to do the follow up on that. Um, you can't have the police chief do all of it because you'll hear numerous complaints. But someone in the department who literally it may be you just refer them to an employee assistance program because all universities have them and their mental health um, professionals who will help anyone in the university but you need to see what it is and do an analysis we always had one person who did what we called the takeout on it they would go interview the individual and the person who saw the erratic behavior and then they would intervene and get the appropriate counselor or someone to help them. I'm sure we saved lots of problems because we were very, very active in pursuing it. We really, and caring was one of our values in all three organizations. So Anne, when we looked at uh, tying the core values to the behaviors for over 250 job descriptions for a typical hospital, that was probably one of the most complex organizations to work with. When you look at at police departments that might have 20 or 30 people with only maybe five or six different job descriptions, it's pretty easy to tie behaviors to those core values, isn't it? Yes. And what you do is you sit in the room and you decide what it is you want um, people, when they describe the person, the um, law enforcement individual, the professional, you sit in a room and they all sit there and they describe those behaviors of the best people they've ever seen in law enforcement. And those become the behaviors, the A player behaviors. And you'd be surprised how often they agree sitting in that room. They kind of come from five or six different places. I just did it for Safer New Mexico now because the entire board is law enforcement. And our, our team, our 18 of the 20 are law enforcement. So we sat in a room and said, what are going to be our values? And I said, look at the A players and law enforcement and what is it you want to see um, be the behaviors? Because these are people that came from law enforcement and they know what a caring law enforcement, enforcement professional does to show they're caring and to do follow up. And I will tell you, we had an erratic behavior with one of our people. And immediately when they told us, we just went through this. And when they told us what was happening on site in one of our offices, we immediately got on it. We called a counselor and we had that counselor investigate literally the background because it was so erratic. We were afraid we were going to have an incident. And so this counselor 
who he was a veteran and this counselor is a counselor for veterans. She investigated it. She came back to us and told us exactly what to do and how to get him the right help. We did. Um, he ended up leaving and he moved because he had so many personal issues and so many health issues. He couldn't get help. And that's what turned him off. But he said, if we hadn't intervened, we would have we would have had a significant issue. Um, and so what we did was we used those people that know law enforcement combined with the counselors to get him the help he needed. And actually, it ended up being very positive, but it could have been very different. Well, so Anne, I think I've known you for 15 or 16 years, uh, maybe even longer. And uh, when we first met, you told me the high predictability of uh, core values and behaviors and, and behavioral-based interviewing. Are those numbers still as rock solid as they were? Yeah, we say that it's over 90% predictive. If you use your behaviors that you want to see in each individual and use values as part of your interview process, you will get, you will, you know, I won't say it's a hundred percent because nothing's a hundred percent, but I will tell you that we have heard almost every client we've ever worked with say it totally changed hiring when they used behavioral based hiring coupled with the values. Most companies say they do behavioral based, but to be very honest, organizations don't couple it with the values. And when you couple with the values, your outcomes will be much greater than they were when they weren't when you were not coupling them with the values. It's totally different in outcomes. Well, Anne, one of the most challenging groups to work with are pilots, very individualistic, very, and they have to be very competent and they're very uh, highly intelligent. Faculty members of universities are not unlike pilots. Uh, and can you share with us the, the challenge, the pluses and minuses and the successes we can have with faculty at, at universities and at academic centers? So right now we are in University of North Texas. We have done Texas Tech and other universities, Un University of New Mexico. I tell the professors um, when I see them, if I see them with four stripes on their shoulders, I know that I can treat them like my captains, which is... They really believe they're right. They've read all about it. They know all the history. And, but when you sit them in a room and they talk about the behaviors they would like to see in the people they work with and the people they work for, there's consistency of answers. And that's when they start buying it, when you include them in the discussion. It's really different outcomes. And we really believe that uh, engaging doctors, engaging professors and PhDs, uh, by getting them actively involved and showing them the data uh, and the impact that that uh, one can really appeal to their better angels, uh, have some <coughs> and then uh, as Teddy Roosevelt would say, uh, talk softly and carry a big stick. Is that a reasonable approach? Yes. Thank you, Anne, so very much for your terrific help over the years. We really appreciate it. So we're very thankful from, uh, for, for Anne sharing such great expertise with us. And just to reinforce some of the things that we've learned, about 10 years ago, I wrote an article called Values Genetics. Who are the real smartest guys in the room? Because uh, we know that faculty members in highly technical areas, uh, physicians, nurses, uh, uh, anybody that is a very scientifically grounded sort of uh, a job, 
thinks that this behavior stuff and psychology is a bunch of mumbo jumbo. So what we did was uh, I took the metaphor and then read it back to Anne and said, Anne, is it reasonable if I tell you what a Corvette, what a gene is, and that a gene uh, has great predictability, and that a trait is what's translated from uh, the gene? Does it make sense to uh, to really use this values genetics model? And she did endorse it and said, yes, this is a good idea. So what we did in the article, which you may download from our website, we'll make sure to have it available so that you can download it. We have copyright authority from the Journal of Patient Safety. Um, uh, that uh, where we've addressed these issues of uh, if a gene is a core value, then a trait can be a behavior and nature and nurture may affect the behavior, just like a child that has a certain genetic makeup. If you don't feed the child and they're in an underprivileged country or community, the, the trait may not be exhibited exactly the same way that one that was that that received proper nutrition, but that there is variability, but that there is real predictability. We used the example of Enron because back then that's when Enron went down. They had a great set of core values, respect, integrity, communication, excellence. They were very clearly articulated on the wall and in all of their literature. However, uh, there were unspoken values and unspoken rules. And uh, the valuation of Enron, uh, it took 16 years to make seven, to be $70 billion in value. It collapsed in 24 days. 20,000 people lost their jobs, their pension losses were $2 billion. And so greed was an unwritten rule and the behaviors were revolved around that. And so when we worked with Anne and we actually put Anne in our Discovery Channel film and, and really worked with this, these, this quote, leaders drive values, values drive behaviors, your collective behaviors or your behaviors are your culture. And uh, this has really resonated well over the last decade. So we're so grateful to have Anne uh, share that with us and these topics. And we're going to take a deeper dive with her in the next webinar. So let's shift gears to a webinar that we actually ran in October of, uh, of 2021, addressing one of the emerging threats, which are fraud. And this, this fraud is uh, can be perpetrated by an organization, by an employee, by a partner, by a caregiver, by an administrator, uh, and you see this uh, this uh, you know entire set uh, around this graphic that we use to help describe it. And as we looked at at this, the, there were four of us that really kind of worked on it, and we had fun putting together. And we're putting together a video called Fraudbusters. But when you really kind of look at uh, look at this this uh, this graphic representation. There are a number of them that just jump off the page: insurer fraud, cybercrime, drug diversion, laboratory scans, academic fraud, kickbacks and conflicts of interest, whistleblower retaliation, Shampir review. These there are there are make no mistake there are invisible. And there are insider threat issues for all of these areas. However, some just kind of jump off the page. Um, and one of them is conflict of interest. And so uh, a letter was sent out August 20th of 2018. This was before COVID uh, by uh, Health and Human Services because our, our industry and our academic community and our NIH funded organizations had such enormous conflicts of interest with nation state penetration 
And there was such fraud being perpetrated by researchers that uh, all organizations, uh, they studied all organizations. And if you got a notification letter, you had to uh, uh, contact the local FBI office. And this is a major issue. We've got uh, colleagues and friends who have had spent tens of millions of dollars that they had to give back to the federal government because of fraudulent uh, submissions for grants. Um, also, disclosure is a major issue, and it was a major issue when I was the editor-in-chief of a global journal, and uh, it continues to be. So we began uh, watching and following the press articles and through our networks of a number of the conflict of interest stories. Johns Hopkins, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center at Texas Medical Center, where I trained, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I was on faculty, the Vanderbilt School of Medicine, uh, Duke uh, University, University of Maryland, uh, UNC, MIT, uh, and again, Hopkins. And so um, as we look through these, and, and for those that are on, the, um, on our podcast, uh, we're not going to read these. This is really a setup uh, for Dr. Boats, who's going to address this issue, but heart-wrenching story of Johns Hopkins and so many children and families, children that died and, and families that, uh, were, that were harmed according to the press and according to the lawsuits and Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital in Florida, which led the Tampa Bay Times to then investigate all of Johns Hopkins, and they identified uh, critical uh, issues and whistleblower issues regarding uh, harm uh, of children reported by their, uh, their leader of plastic surgery. Memorial Sloan Kettering paid uh, an enormous amount of money uh, regarding um, uh, conflicts of interest with their board and their chief medical officer, uh, top executives, uh, and the board of directors uh, were uh, reportedly implicated in uh, creating uh, ventures and taking advantage of the data of Memorial Sloan Kettering, our number two medical center, uh, treating cancer. Um, serious safety lapses at St. Luke's uh, cardio cardiovascular program, where I trained at Texas Medical Center, uh, with uh, uh, terrible, uh, terrible results that came. Um, the uh, uh, Harvard uh, uh, report of falsification of research by the cardiac stem uh, care team, uh, 31 articles retracted at Harvard. Uh, this made New York Times and Washington Post. Uh, we all in patient safety are very familiar with uh, what happened to the nurse in Tennessee, uh, 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 Redonda Vaught, who uh, had a, a terrible experience of making a unintentional error that harmed a patient. Uh, and the, a number of issues uh, uh, came out regarding how the information was managed after uh, the error. And uh, uh, we won't quote them, but there were many problems that went far beyond uh, the issue uh, pertaining to, uh, to this uh, systemic uh, era. And she was actually convicted, got probation, but uh, just a real travesty on our healthcare uh, system. Duke whistleblower uh, case of more than 33 million in research fraud settlement. Um, it settled Dr. Data lawsuit for 112.5 uh, uh, million, more than 33 million in the research fraud se uh, settlement where data was faked and studied the effects of pollutants on the lungs of mouse models. Um, a Baltimore scandal uh, with the ex-mayor uh, who gets three years in prison with the University of Maryland uh, Medical Center uh, and it, it involves in, involved in self-dealing book scandal for thousands of dollars. 
uh, UNC, uh, the UNC system head, former UNC healthcare CEO, didn't disclose corporate board seats that paid millions on ethics forms uh, and uh, people losing their jobs. MIT's media lab director resigned after taking money from uh, Jeff Jeffrey Epstein. So even those who we, uh, who we work with uh, could put us at risk. And so that's why it's so important to have the, the associations and then uh, as we started with Hopkins and end with Hopkins with the children's uh, hospital fines that were uh, found and a number of articles, there were over 30 articles that addressed that issue uh, regarding Hopkins. And then the Harvard chemistry chairman under investigation and ultimately uh, paid the price uh, for um, lying about uh, taking millions of dollars from the Chinese government. And there are stories of uh, researchers in Boston getting caught at Logan Airport taking intellectual property on the planes uh, uh, over the holiday, uh, over a holiday. So a lot of these issues, this is not uncommon that this is going on. And it's critical that we uh, that we be aware of it. We've asked Dr. Gregory Boats, our uh, he's been our lead for our MedTech uh, Bystander Rescue Care Program, uh, a real inspiration to all of us uh, who's for this issue is also the director of the the medical director for the police department at the University of Texas. Uh, Health Science Center Police Department in Houston. He's a full professor at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's a, a adjunct full professor at Stanford University. He did a fellowship in simulation at Stanford. Um, and for my money, somebody that we really have to listen to on a number of these critical topics. And we're going to ask Dr. Boats. We recorded him late last night. He's in the ICU today. Dr. Boats, thank you so much for your time today. Insider threats at academic medical centers. What's your take? Well, I think in the in the realm of insider threat, um, academic centers are particularly at risk. And I think one of the most important areas of concern surrounds conflict of interest, conflict of interest from faculty, from other employees, and from uh, vendors and trainees that happen to come into our institutions for a variety of reasons. And they've gotten pretty entrepreneurial as we review the cases uh, that were very uh, covered very widely and uh, in very comprehensive ways before the COVID crisis. We always see an economic incentive. There's always an economic incentive there, be it in cahoots with a nation state or some other approach. Well, I think that's true. And my take would be that it's not necessarily the member of an academic institution looking to enrich themselves, but that is the usual way in which they're enticed to participate in these activities because that's the most tangible and direct way to, to get these people to cooperate. People are surprised when they see organizations that are very strict regarding conflict of interest and thinking that the faculty will revolt. And in the case of Kaiser, and, and I know at MD Anderson and Mayo Clinic, there are very strict requirements and there does not seem to be um, too much pushback. Well, I think that's true. And I think part of that is that uh, there is a significant amount at risk for participation in these conflicts, both the ability to gain or to maintain grants, um, and certainly the ability to continue academic productivity uh, is at risk. I think one of the most important things that 
I see is that the institutions are trying very hard to uh, manage the ability for information or data to leak from the institution uh, unknowingly. I think it's very much a case of not knowing what they don't know about their vulnerability to these insider threats. You and I have talked about the surprising nature of disclosure at some universities where um, there may be many ways that a physician or a researcher might be participating economically with companies and and uh, they don't have to disclose those things to many of the journals or whatever they, they they have the luxury of picking what they disclose. Oh, that's very true. Uh, in my experience, the conflict of interest disclosure process is very much weighted towards protecting the institution and not very heavily weighted on uh, looking at the participant and their risk, uh, their conflict of interest, um, and perhaps doing a little bit more to see what their risk for conflict of interest might be. And so some of these institutions uh, offer their faculty a blanket conflict of interest uh, acknowledgement um, without having actually investigated what the potential risk is for that faculty member in their institution. Another area of insider threat and a great threat to the brand of an organization is when a researcher cuts corners on, uh, on information, uh, may delete information that makes their procedure or whatever the product they're using look less uh, less successful. Um, your take on that, we're, we're constantly surprised by seeing those kinds of violations as well. Well, it's absolutely an occupational hazard in academic institutions. I think in other areas of patient safety, we've talked about the normalization of deviance. Well, that's similarly done in our conflict of interest reporting such that behavior is influenced by how much you have to disclose, uh, who might find out about this relationship, and whether the process is in fact strict enough to uh, be an incentive not to cut corners. I was surprised at how precious few retractions actually occur when even an entire specialty area, uh, physicians might know that something is just not right, and yet there's no retraction. I know when I took the helm of the Journal for of Patient Safety, my first action as the editor-in-chief was actually to retract an article uh, written by someone who said that they were a cardiologist, and it turned out that they were a United airline pilot who had been to medical school, but had been selling consulting services, and it, I was so surprised that that was one of my first activities. What's your take on this imposter culture and people blending or enhancing their resumes? Well, I know that that's probably a widespread problem in academia. Um, there is certainly no uh, cross-checking of credentials at that level in order to um, determine veracity. I think it's much more likely that people will perhaps be a whistleblower or call attention to data errors or misrepresentation, but I don't think people are really interested in looking at someone's qualifications in a granular manner to refute that. Um, there really isn't any, any way except for looking at someone's CV to, to go about doing that verification. And I think that 
there may be a sense that if someone looks hard at someone else's qualifications, they might look at mine. And uh, although most of us have a lot at risk for making errors in our CVs, again, there's no one really checking. Well, the article regarding the nursing uh, licenses and nursing certifications and degrees out of Florida was shocking in terms of over 7,000 of such uh, certifications were sold with for over $100 million, and many states had to retract the licenses of nurses. That's a real patient safety issue, isn't it? It, it really kind of shows us that conflict of interest and, and fraud and improper documentation can really lead to some pretty terrible opportunities for, for failure of patient safety issues. It certainly does. There's no question about that. And that fraud associated with nursing licensure was uh, a warning sign in healthcare about the level of checking that one does in order to verify someone's credentials. And I think with the advent of online databases, um, certainly with the National Practitioner Database and things like that, it's a little bit easier to delve into someone's past behavior. But we've got lots of examples of physicians that had problems with their licensure in one state that just went to another state and got licensure there, and they really didn't check. Um, those things didn't come out uh, perhaps until another problem happened in that new state and they actually looked a little harder. Dr. Boats, you train a lot of wonderful young people in your specialty at MD Anderson and, and at Stanford and, and in your adjunct appointment. Um, do you see that, uh, that we have hope in the, in the upcoming future doctors that they're really uh, morally grounded and, and that, uh, that we have hope? Well, you know, that's hard to gauge, but I choose to be an optimist. And the young trainees that I work with are not only smart and very facile with using information technology and learning the craft of medicine that uh, I hope to be a role model for in them. Um, but I think they hold themselves to a standard of excellence um, and hold each other accountable uh, more so than perhaps I've seen in previous generations. Vicki King, who you and I and, and Chief Adcox have had this wonderful opportunity to work with, uh, suggested that one of the most valuable things to tackle uh, insider threat are anonymous reporting systems with a very strong follow-up on anonymous reporting. Your take. I think that's incredibly important. Um, I think that uh, we know from threat management that very early on in some of these events, there's leakage that uh, if you're not paying attention to, can go on for some time until an event occurs. And so having an anonymous reporting system that not only is confidential, but gives the reporter a sense that you've heard the message and you're doing something to look into it, even if you can't give them exact information about your investigation. I think it's really important to have feedback that you've heard them and you are looking into it. Uh, will allow for the detection of some of these insider threats, some of these activities that are uh, can be potentially harmful for individuals and organizations um, can take place. Dr. Boats, it's time for a short PSA. 
You've been the inspiration of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program, and we just like to have you make your pitch to caregivers, administrators, governance leaders, the C-suite, on how critically important bystander rescue care training, CPR, AED, Stop the Bleed training, uh, and, and the other areas that we're focused on. Can you make your pitch? So here's my elevator pitch. Um, we know that there are excess deaths in our communities in young people in the K to 12 community and young adults either in college or in the workplace um, who unnecessarily or um, un, uh, unnecessarily die from preventable causes of death. And with very simple interventions like learning CPR, learning to recognize an overdose and providing life-saving care like either rescue position or Narcan administration, um, using an EpiPen for someone who's having a severe allergic reaction. All of those things are relatively easy to teach to bystanders and they can bridge the gap between the time of injury and the time of the response of professional first responders, which in most communities is a significant amount of time and many people can die in that amount of time. So um, I am encouraged to see that we can implement the knowledge and skills in bystanders to be rescuers in that circumstance to help prevent those unnecessary deaths. Well, Dr. Boats, uh, I just want to thank you for encouraging us to consider this back in 2015. And we tested it here in, in Southern California and then you in Houston. And we experimented with our fifth graders and then multiple courses after school. And uh, we know at least five or six lives that have been saved because of uh, your inspiration just in the, our core team that are none, none of which are medical other than you and I. And so I just want to thank you for your great contribution. Well, thank you very much. So Dr. Boats uh, has uh, addressed a number of these critical issues. And for those on the podcast, uh, just to reemphasize, he, he addressed the economic incentives, the fact we've got a huge problem with incomplete disclosures of financial relationships. We've got a number of cases of people cutting corners uh, for financial gain or for ego reasons uh, on R&D, that we really have an imposter culture problem. And we see that in our political system, but we see it in healthcare uh, as well. And this, this nursing problem was in multiple states, uh, over 7,000 uh, uh, nursing uh, um, uh, certificates of graduation uh, were provided for over $100 million. Uh, uh, there is hope with our young doctors. We ask him that a question, and you see that Dr. Boats reaffirmed this critical nature of having an anonymous reporting system that was brought up by Vicki King, uh, was also uh, underscored by by uh, Ann Rhodes, and then also uh, this bystander rescue care uh, uh, area. The conflict of interest uh, document or graphic that I have on the screen right now is actually the code of conduct for Kaiser uh, Healthcare. And uh, when they put out such a strict code that prohibit doctors from accepting anything at all from drug or device companies, forming an ethics committee to address concerns doctors have, direct all research funding, regardless of the source, to the institution and not to the individual, so no funding for research, but to the organization and requiring all providers to disclose any past payments 
prior to the policy implementation and uh, hue and cry went up and there were many people that said there, there would be a major revolt and there were less than five uh, doctors that actually left uh, the program. And so it really does work, this kind of code of conduct. Uh, uh, also at the Mayo Clinic, where I had the privilege of being on faculty as a biomedical engineer, uh, where it was very helpful. Um, for those in the, in the uh, on the podcast, I have the graphic up of the Florida nursing operators that uh, pled guilty to this fraudulent uh, issue. And for those that want to see more about bystander rescue care, go to www www.medtechglobal.org um, and the you you'll find the eight areas for which we've been focusing uh, on uh, reducing uh, the potential loss of life and long-term harm from eight conditions in those eight to 12 minutes when EMS is arriving we're doing an awful lot on the west coast and uh, Hawaiian islands and really all over the world in more remote places as well as our normal uh, or urban sites and our goal is three minutes from drop to shock uh, for a sudden cardiac arrest and three minutes from gunshot to stopping the bleed, uh, stop the, stopping bleeding. Uh, we know that the typical survival drops uh, when the, the vital organs are not oxygenated, drops 10% for every minute that we lack uh, oxygenization uh, uh, and that uh, why it's so critical that CPR uh, is, uh, uh, is administrated. I want to draw your attention to the other side of the coin. Yes, uh, we, we do have a, a problem with insider threat, but we also have a problem um, with people improperly uh, accused of such. And we started a program building on standing on the shoulders of the uh, Innocence Project, where lawyers put together a strategy to reduce the uh, improper conviction of people by using DNA. Well, the new DNA of today are the EHRs and the digital DNA that we find in our medical records. And so we launched a program to help those who are improperly, uh, that were improperly accused uh, of things. As they say, you can indict a ham sandwich that acts and in the echo chamber of the internet, allegations become fact. And so uh, we've put together a strategy to help. Now, there's some really, really good structure uh, of information definitions of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation that were uh, that have been developed. And we draw, want to draw your attention to the uh, Shorenstein Center on Media and Politics at Harvard that then moved to Brown uh, University, uh, where they say where ideas and evidence meet policy and practice. And they have a, a graphic representation, and for those of you that are on the podcast, of a Venn diagram of two circles. And basically, two areas to think about. When there's information that is put out, there is the there is false information and there is uh, and there is information that is accurate. And the other dimension is intent to harm. And so misinformation may be false information without the intent to harm someone. This is where the echo chamber just puts uh, false information is just going through the echo chamber and it starts to become look like truth. And the intent to harm malinformation is where the information is true, but the intention is to harm someone, doxing. Doxing uh, comes from the term doc, documents, 
And this is where one might identify where someone lives and the financial information that may be accurate, but makes the, them and their families vulnerable to attacks by this in, uh, uncivilized uh, uh, environment that we find ourselves living in today. So it might be accurate information, but the intent is to harm. False information that, uh, that, that is generated without the intent to harm is misinformation. And the worst is disinformation. It's false content or imposter content that has been uh, used to harm. Fabricated content that is intended to cause harm for competitive purposes, financial purposes. So just to reiterate, false information that, uh, that is released without the intent to harm is misinformation. And malinformation is intent to harm, but it may be true. And then disinformation is the worst, which is false information that is intended to harm. And we're living in a culture of what I call, and many people have called, and I looked it up, outrage porn, where it's much more likely to have uh, a message replicated in the echo chamber of the of the internet uh, when it uh, it is out, it evokes outrage and emotion and when people feel that things aren't going well and out of control the outrage porn is very very addicting so it's important to us now to think about uh, insider threat and say, okay, um, do we just have a passive defense and we wait for something to happen and then we try to minimize harm? Or can we have an offense? Can we look at deterrence? Can we look at de-escalation? Can we identify red flags that we, or in, in football, as a, as a football coach of just young kids, uh, and I played football, but I was never uh, uh, on a team at a high level. But the bottom line is, is that there are tells. There are things that we can tell about what someone is going to do if we really study it. And we really believe that both an offense and a defense are important. Now, what's failing in, in insider threat and in active shooter events and these lethal force incidents What's failing is a reactive treatment threat management program. Traditional systems and processes that were developed pre-social media and internet surveillance are reactive and not proactive. They're getting caught behind the curve. Administrative committees rather than teams, one has to consider that we're battling threats, we're on the gridiron, we're fighting it out day after day, this is not a committee process. If you've got a threat management committee that has somebody report something up and that there are days and weeks before a reaction occurs, we know that that spells life and death situations. Many of our universities, our larger universities are running 20 to 40 to 50 rapes reported every single year. One in five young ladies uh, report such events. Uh, you're accountable to their parents. We say that we're accountable not only to the tens of thousands of students in higher education, but the, the, the grandmas and the grandpas and the aunts and the uncles. And for those of us that have had family members harmed in this way, uh, you never forget it. Uh, the teams have to have skins in the game without direct, you heard this from Ann Rhodes, without direct and personal accountability tied to advancement and economic consequences um, learned helplessness trumps action. And we saw this. And as the lead person of a team that put together the LeapFrog, the original LeapFrog survey, I can tell you that what was make or break for us was that the C we insisted that the CEO personally sign the submission to LeapFrog. 
Um, so what are some of the challenges that we face when we have what we call a culture cancer, the cancer of our culture? If our core values uh, that are being lived uh, where the core values are not being lived and and they're they're just on the wall the vision the mission the core value statements are 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 on the wall but not being lived uh for instance and we have a graphic for those of you on the uh podcast uh of uh, uh the rules uh are there uh, the rules are there are no rules we can do what we want so unspoken rules actually dictate what's going to happen if they don't sync with the core values invisible values so the invisible values we talked about at enron everybody knew they had values on the wall it was for the analysts but the bottom line was that you had to make your number no matter how you did it and it didn't matter how you did it and how many of us have worked in healthcare institutions where you got to cut 10 percent of your budget and i don't care how you do it and i'm such a great leader i'm making you accountable but don't tell me anymore it it, it and so what do we do um uh, as one of our great leaders in patient safety and years gone by would say, uh, hospitals would, uh, the first things to cut are nursing staff, uh, housekeeping, patient safety programs, uh, continuing education, uh, and security. Those are the things that were easy to cut. And so you ended up with a, uh, a more lethally at risk organization uh, of a dirty hospital with a whole lot more uh, likelihood of patient safety uh, problems. Uh, learned helplessness is something that uh, when we're caught in the bureaucratic uh, snag uh, and we can't get anything done and, and many will just kick a, kick a problem over to another department that gets kicked back. How many of us have had that happen? Um, it happens all the time. And uh, some of us say that our medical centers are world-class medical centers built on the DMV uh, and, and where things just take so much time and there's a learned helplessness. And then survival of the fittest uh, is, is where no matter what you do, you keep your job, you keep, uh, uh, we, we used to talk about the, the three keeps of a hospital CEO, which is keep the board happy, keep the docs happy, keep your job. Uh, and, and, and the rest was not uh, critical. So the problem is that the, the, uh, a values problem, a difficulty with our core values not being lived is contagious. It's not only like a, uh, an infectious disease, uh, but it's like a cancer. It's not only contagious, but it can metastasize. And this is a, a real challenge for us to turn organizations around. And we've heard from Ann. And so when we ask Ann, what do we need to do? And Ann tells us that what we need to do is our A players will live the values, promote them, pay for them, give them opportunities for advancement. Don't lose them no matter what. Uh, B players, they can live the, live the values. They may not be in an environment where they can live the values, create the environment for a B player to become an A player. Never fire a B player that has the potential to become an A player. And then the last thing Ann taught us, which is the tough love piece, there are C players that are never going to live the values. They're grumblers, they've got a grievance, and we need to know that, the, that those are the players that could be the potential red flag uh, players. And so it's critical that we recognize that uh, that it is the grievance warrior that is the the real threat. And as we as you listen, if you go back to listen to Vicki King on our prior programs, you'll hear her talk about the grievance warrior and trying to de deescalate this feeling that they've been hard done by. And we've seen this uh, with authoritarian cultures. All you have to do is you if you tap into people that feel out of control, have a grievance, 
others are getting more than they are. And you can really tap that grievance. That's where you can get more than one person to be involved in, um, in insider threats and can be a real problem. So uh, as you hear from Anne, it's critical to build uh, things on values. And can you turn them around? I've seen Anne turn around company after company, big companies after company, and build them from scratch. So uh, we really know this to be true. So what we're going to do now, uh, we're at, uh, we have uh, uh, 16 minutes until the end of our 90-minute program for those of you that are getting uh, your uh, continuing education credits and your continuing education units for nursing and risk management credits. Um, uh, please uh, uh, apply for those and work with us for those for the 90 minutes. For those of you that can stay on longer and those that are on the podcast, we're now going to play uh, the video by the um, uh, by the, the, the FBI that uh, is uh, one that really kind of describes uh, it's a dramatization of a true story. And it may be one that you may want to use. And we want to draw your attention to the fact that the three videos that we found to be really helpful for, yeah, for insider threats are all posted on our website. So we'd like to thank all of you. Jenny will close uh, after, at the end of the video. And we want to thank you all for your attendance. And please let us know uh, in, the, uh, in the chat or the questions, questions that you'd like to ask of our Folks, uh, uh, they're not live as reactors today. Uh, a lot of complications with everybody uh, uh, out uh, pocket, but we will address your questions uh, in our next webinar, which will be uh, the uh, number six in our series of workplace violence. And so thank you very much, Jenny. We'll close us after we finish the video called The Company Man. So some of you may consider, oh, well, this isn't healthcare and this really doesn't apply to us. But I will tell you that the organizations we're working with, the visitors from China that came to visit uh, our top medical centers uh, would come for tours and then some would walk really fast and some would walk really slow. Those walking slow would try to stick USB drives in the computers at our major top medical centers. So just about everything that you saw in this film could easily have happened and does happen at our major medical centers. And you may be at a small hospital, but uh, you may be using technologies that might be at risk there as well. And your HR issues are definitely uh, a key issue. So we'll hear from Jenny uh, Dingman in uh, our close. And, uh, and uh, we want to thank you for attending today. That was really a great program today. Thank you to all of our speakers for all of the knowledge and wisdom that you're giving to us. Again, I want to thank all of our participants for being here today and encourage you to please share the recordings with your friends, families, and colleagues. Looking forward to next month, and God bless everyone here. So what we'd like to do is we just like to remind you that uh, kind of our motto is fight the good fight. Finish the race, keep the faith, and uh, even though some of these areas are not 100% uh, in the traditional patient safety area, that everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver, and many of the things that we discussed today actually can impact patient safety and quality, and we want to thank you for attending us, uh, attending with us, and God bless you, and we'll see you next month.